Totally Football Show. It's been a wonderful, high-scoring summer of action from both the men and the women, all being live from that villa in Mallorca. But we're ready now for a dramatic start of a brand new football season. Game on. So far, we've had uh, the Community Shield. So we'll talk about that and we'll preview the battle ahead for the Premier League crown of the tussle to be top six. All coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, everybody. In a swap of Lukaku, Dubalares proportions, Matt Davis Adams exits and enter moi. Joined today on the Totally Football Show by Daniel Story, writer for The Eye, Football 365, and so much more. Good morning. Good morning to you, Daniel. Also here, Michael Cox, author of The Mixer and Zonal Marking, and one of the hottest transfers to The Athletic. Yeah, that is correct. Yes, as of today. Brilliant. Nick Miller is here, and he's also making a high-profile switch to an exciting new online destination, Nick, because you are the editor of the all-new TotallyFootballShow.com. I am, yeah. If it launches today. Uh, it should be should be out by the time this podcast goes out. Really? Yeah, that's my big, glitzy announcement. What sort of thing can we expect on the TotallyFootballShow.com? Well, it's, they're going to have the, the best from the podcasts and various other red hot content features interviews so on we've got something with uh, Jürgen Klinsmann's 25th anniversary of him joining Tottenham an interview with Javier Tebas the uh, Spanish La Liga big wig and uh, plenty more besides that as well so have a look excellent all right Michael the Athletic have caused some consternation by hoovering up half the industry can you explain a little bit more uh, about what their project is and and what's behind it yeah it's basically the uk extension of um a company that launched in the us about three years ago um that offers in the us offers what they call hyper local journalism so basically replacing people used to work for local papers doing everything online you subscribe for a flat fee every month and you get all that coverage and now all the Premier League coverage. But yeah, they've signed a lot of a lot of people from The Times and The Guardian and the BBC. Listeners of this podcast will hopefully know myself and Raphael Honigstein and Jack Lang as well. Jack's gone. Yes. So, uh, I mean, it's it's the first day, but the content is, is really good. And there's a, a trial offer on, which means if you subscribe for a year, it costs £2.50 a month. Other websites are available. But pretty much anyone who's anyone in, in, in sports journalism is gone. That's the message I, I'm getting. Uh, Daniel, Cheers. the other half now wandering lost like <laughs> like the left behind after the rapture. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I'm still shamelessly for hire. So, yes. All right. Well, we've got a busy week here at Totally Towers where we're going to be talking about the new season. We're going to be looking forward to Europe in Tuesday's brand new Euro edition of the Totally Football Show, which will be coming down the same feed as, as the regular show. Uh, but we'll be having a bang about the Premier League after this. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Antonio Bravo is having to scuttle back quickly. Blocked by Stone, Salah again! What a clearance that is! What a clearance from Kyle Walker. Circus acrobatic stuff. Kyle Walker there with the biggest clearance since they remained all that Tim Lovejoy stock. So, very exciting. Last season, finished with Man City and Liverpool one point apart. City, who trailed for only 132 minutes in the course of the last campaign in the Premier League, which is... Uh, according to Duncan Alexander, the exact length of Die Hard. 
So, hmm. uh, what will it be like this time around? Can Liverpool challenge again? Can anybody? Daniel, you've just been watching the two of them go at it at Wembley. Your thoughts? I thought there were two obvious things to take out of the game. The first was that Manchester City and Liverpool increasingly, certainly player on player, actively dislike each other. It really feels like a proper rivalry in the old style of Manchester United and Arsenal. The two managers have tried to sort of be a little bit more respectful of each other, but the players seem to have a real vehement passion to beat each other, clearly prolonged by their title race last season, but that seems to have come straight into this season. And also, I thought it was interesting just how hard Liverpool tried to get back into the game, given that this is officially a friendly, given that Liverpool have some concerns about fatigue with all of the front three playing international football this summer. It was interesting to see quite how hard they tried to fight to get back in the game, which suggests that they understand the importance of trying to get under Manchester City's skin, because I think the only way they win the league this year is if they take probably four, maybe even six points off Manchester City. I thought it was a really good game. Uh, these games are quite often soporific, but it's pretty good fare. Well, it ended a draw, which suggests, I guess... That's right, isn't it, Michael? It ended a draw. I mean, technically, it ended a draw. <laughs> it did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which suggests it's going to be extremely tight this time around in in the title race. So, uh, who's going to win it, do you think, based on that 90 minutes that you saw plus penalties? Well, I, I don't think much has changed from last season. I mean, these aren't sides who have lost players. They haven't really brought in anyone. Obviously, Rodri has come in for City, but is he better than Fernandinho at the moment? I think there's a minimal upgrade there for now. So... I think it's going to be another very tight race and I still see City prevailing. Obviously, Daniel thinks differently, but yeah, I think City are really strong. Daniel, you think differently. Uh, I am happy to make the case for Liverpool. I think City will probably win the league, but it should be said that we came kind of infatuated by transfer culture and Michael spoke often about it last season with regards to Tottenham, that the assumption that not buying players means you're moving backwards. That's not necessarily the case and certainly not with a club like Liverpool where... In fact, buying an expensive signing, buying a fourth striker, could just as easily upset the rhythm as, as not buying anyone at all. Klopp knows what he's doing. He works on motivation. He works on man management. And I don't really see any change there. I think, as Michael says, I think it will probably be a very, very similar title race. I think they'll both beat pretty much everyone below them. And I think it will come down to the games against the top six. Wow. That, that, that is true about the, the, the lack of transfers. But there's this sort of interesting... Oh well, I use the word interesting advisedly maybe, but uh, parallel between Liverpool and the Boston Red Sox, who obviously owned by the same people. The Red Sox won the World Series last season, didn't sign anyone over the summer and are now terrible. Mm. So I don't know, I, w- I wonder whether there was any uh, that ever kind of came into their thinking over the summer. You've also got the parallel with soccer club Spurs, who of course were fantastic having not signed anybody. Mm. They've now signed people. So I'm wondering, Nick, could you construct an argument for a third party like Tottenham to maybe... Because they had a bit of a, a go at the title for a while. There was a brief week or two when it looked like maybe they'd be in the mix. What, what do you think? Well, they've signed one people so far. That uh, possibly, possibly more coming in, and they, they, they've got a bit of a hole at right back at the moment. And Danny Rose might be going. They've they, they, not done Sessignon. Is that not gone through yet? Uh, not at the time of writing. All right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the squad was kind of being held together with sort of twigs and spit at the end of last season. They obviously they made the Champions League final. They might have won the Champions League were it not for the the handball decision very early on in it. But I, I think that there's a, the not signing someone you're stretching a point. I think with okay. Tottenham this season. 
The, the other thing to mention on, on Liverpool and with regards to the Boston Red Sox thing is that Liverpool have finished in the top two in the Premier League three times in the Premier League era. And they've, the, the following season, they finished fifth, sixth and seventh. So they, they have never yet replicated a strong Premier League season by going again. That was always Brendan Rodgers' problem is that they struggled in that second season to kind of bottle the lightning again. It feels more sustainable under clock purely because they reached the Champions League final two years ago and were pretty good last season. But that is something to overcome psychologically. Right. Also, the fact that Firmino, Salah and Mane have all come from summer tournaments. Yeah, Mane wasn't even in the squad at Wembley yesterday. Salah looked like early last season, incredibly sharp in moments and then other moments where he looks like he can't kick the ball straight. But they would rather have him in that than the other way around. I think I suggest they'll be fine. They play Norwich at home in their first game, which is as good as they could have expected for a, a dare I say, it, a sort of a buy for their first league game. It means that Klopp doesn't have to pick all of those front three if he doesn't want to. But it, it, by all accounts, he's he's happy to rely on Divock and and the developing Rian Brewster as the as the backup options, which is is brave. W- one thing Klopp said when when his Dortmund side fell away after their peak is that you need to make changes to a squad to keep it fresh he right. said you know if I tell them 200 times to go left they're used to me telling them that so they will stop listening and he hasn't made changes so he clearly backing himself to do it another way yeah you have got some new faces or newish faces Oxlade Chamberlain back in the in the picture and excitingly Fulham's 16 year old Harvey Elliott and his haircut making the journey up to mm. Anfield can you tell me much about him well he's clearly a massive talent and all the all the coaches at Fulham will wax lyrical about him but it always slightly disappoints me when these moves come so early because I, I honestly can't see him breaking that team for two years and it's what happens to his development over those two years when he's not playing that regular football. He's not a first-team signing at 16. So, yeah, they do have Oxley chamberlain coming back. They've got Joe Gomez, who will have a full season. Adam Lallana will be fit, I suppose. Naby Keita will back himself to be a lot better than last season. So there are, there are new-ish faces there, but there isn't anyone to really re-energise a squad. Do they need then City to, to, to take a tumble, perhaps, because they're concentrating on continental ambitions? Yeah, possibly. I think that is a factor. By being knocked out in the quarterfinals, they had three fewer games than Liverpool. And when you look at the results of those league games around the time they would have been playing semi-finals, they beat Burnley 1-0, they beat Leicester 1-0. These were games where if you'd played in midweek, maybe you wouldn't have got the three points and therefore you wouldn't have won the league. In terms of the game specifically yesterday, it's tough to read too much into it because it's kind of semi-competitive. But I thought the interesting thing was the pattern was kind of reversed from what we've seen from these contests in recent years. So usually Liverpool start really high tempo, dominate the first 20 minutes and then struggle to sustain it and fall away and City come into the game. Whereas this was pretty much a game of two halves as far as I saw it. City could have been you know, out of sight at half-time, but Liverpool probably by full-time would be disappointed they didn't win the game inside 90 minutes. So whether that's to do with fitness or conditioning or you know, Liverpool almost not taking it so seriously and then being jolted into action by the fact they're being outplayed. But it was, yeah, the opposite of usual. One interesting after the game was Klopp saying, and there are reasons for politically for him to say this, but he said it's going to take at least four or five weeks for us to get up to speed. Now, that might be nice in theory, but he can't afford that. Last season, the only reason Liverpool were in a title race is because they started so fast. Obviously, they lost a, a seven-point lead by the end of the season. So... If they're going to maintain a title challenge, they are going to have to start in exactly the same way as they did last season, sprinting from the get-go, winning their first five or six games. Because otherwise, if they drop four or five points in their first six or seven games, then it can suddenly feel a long season for for anyone but Manchester City, I think. Mm. 
They are European champions, of course. For the sixth time, I, I read. Nick, who's your money on? Manchester City. Sorry for being boring here, but yeah, it's Liverpool will probably make it a, 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 a give them a run like they did last season. But I think City are too strong. Things could go wrong, though, couldn't they? They could go wrong. They could go horribly wrong. But uh, I don't what think what could they will. go wrong, Nick. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. They could all sort of develop a strong sense of ennui and just lie down in the middle of the pitch and don't want to go on. Probably not going to happen, though. We've seen it happen. But uh, sorry, Michael. No, just one point. I mean, I. We're all kind of looking for reasons why City will, will kind of get worse than last season and make it more of an interesting contest. But their best two players yesterday were De Bruyne and Claudio Bravo, neither of whom really played anything last year. I mean, Bravo, of course, is not going to play in, uh, in the full side, but is a decent enough backup keeper. And De Bruyne was just his runs into that inside right channel. I mean, he's, he's probably close to being the best player in the Premier League. And he's almost, he's not like a new signing, but he's, he's like a player returning from an injury-plagued season. One thing you'll be able to answer better than me, Michael, but obviously Guardiola didn't play Aguero yesterday. He kind of played this five attacking midfielders with Sterling starting as the most advanced. And then obviously Sané's injury changes it because Sané drifts and Hazus comes on. But do you think that's something they might try and do this season and fade out Aguero a little bit? Or is it just giving something new a go? To be honest, a couple of years ago, I really didn't think Guardiola fancied Aguero. I think he he thought he was too one-dimensional and not good enough in terms of his link-up play. And then... Aguero, I think, has improved a lot under Guardiola. Gabriel Jesus probably hasn't pushed on as much as we expected, but then he had a very successful Copa America. Maybe that will get his confidence up. So maybe we'll see it now and then. But, you know, as Jesus and Aguero can pretty much only play up front, can't they? So it's kind of two going into one position there. So I still think Sterling will, will start from wide. He's a funny player, Sterling. I know he was fantastic last season, but that finish, or, you know, the non-finish where he was through on goal and... He didn't even square it in the end. He kind no. of just almost tripped over it's, the ball. I've never seen a... Well, I say never. It's probably hyperbolic. But it's a long time since I've seen a player who is so... Diff- his ability is so different whether he has time to think or not. On instinct, he's brilliant. And that's why those six-yard box finishes are great. But as soon as he has time to think almost, it's like the doubts creep in and he just sort of wobbles a little bit. And at that level, if you wobble, then someone will take the ball off you. Another talent who hopefully will be featuring more prominently for City this year, Phil Foden, Nick. Mm. Well, I mean, the thing is, will he feature more prominently? Because who's he getting in the team ahead of? De Bruyne was out for a lot of last season and Foden still didn't play very much. So if De Bruyne's there and it plays as, as good as well as he did on um, on Sunday, then Foden probably isn't going to get another chance, which is a real shame because he's obviously a very, very talented player. But it's difficult to see where he's going to get in. Liverpool beginning their campaign at home to Norwich. Man City have West Ham away. So hmm. uh, we'll be discussing West Ham and their prospects in Thursday's show, interestingly enough. Michael, you're excited by that news. I'm in, not in on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, what about the rest of the Premier League? Any chance of somebody else breaking into the top two? Nick is going to say something irrational about another outfit. Who? We'll find out after this. Paddy Power knows the very best way to sponsor a team is by unsponsoring them. That's why we're launching the Save Our Shirt campaign. And that's why Huddersfield Town's kit won't have our logo on it at all. Don't you wish we weren't on your shirt? Paddy Power. Save Our Shirt. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Hello, people of London and the Inverons. The first Totally Football Live of the new season is creeping up on us. I'm going to be at the South Bank Centre with Duncan Alexander, James Horncastle and Julian Laurence from our new 
Tuesday Totally European show on Monday, September the 30th. You can get your tickets to join us right now at southbankcentre.co.uk and just search for The Totally Football Show. That's exciting news. All right, then. So, Nick, uh, you were just saying about how you have a very good feeling about another team and their and their prospects, not of top two, but certainly of, you know, maybe a third spot. Chelsea it is, isn't it? Yeah, I have a sort of irrational, slightly irrational uh, feeling that they're going to be quite good. Well, I don't think that that's that irrational. A, because they finished third last year. And B, and hear me out here, people, because Pulisic coming in, Frank Lampard, I mean, and also, can no, no, because Frank Lampard's going to come in and he's go, hello, here's Kante, who potentially is, is a title-winning player, is a transformative player, who essentially hasn't been used properly for a year. What do you think? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, the, the concern is that they might not have a proper centre-forward or certainly a centre-forward that will score goals. But um, Pulisic is a bit of a, a wild card. He's under going to be under a lot of pressure to basically replace Eden Hazard but when Hudson-Odoi comes back and Ruben Loftus-Cheek comes back although that might not be for a little while they, they have a, a, a an excellent sort of cast of supporting characters Mason Mount is I think is very good he was very good for Derby last season and um, has by all accounts looked very good in pre-season as well OK um, what do you base your positive feeling on then? Oh nothing at all no it's just a, <laughs> it's just a kind of a, a sense uh, 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 a kind of vibe that I get from them. Um, I, I do. I think Lampard is quite a promising manager. He, he, he was kind of learning on the job last season, but the good parts of Derby were very good, um, and he, he'll he'll get a little bit more kind of time and goodwill at Chelsea than any other manager might do. Yeah, uh, my doubt is that I don't think he's as good as Sarri, and I think they've lost the best player in the country. In Eden Hazard, well, I don't, when, when you put it like, <laughs> I don't think Hazard will be as good at Real as he was at Chelsea, but I think Chelsea, he, he damages Chelsea hugely by losing him. I do, I do agree that the kind of goodwill amongst supporters for Lampard will mean that it takes him through this season of transfer ban potentially. But and I think if he finishes fifth, they'll probably keep him in his job. I don't think they'll get rid of him, which is mad given that they got rid of Sarri when he finished third. But that's just how things go. But yeah, I just don't think they're they're as good with anywhere near as good without Hazard right there is this notion that the transfer ban could actually be a blessing in disguise given this club's historic problems in bringing through young talent yeah I think it can be a positive but if it's going to be a positive it will be over a two or three year period because those players well a couple of them have got injuries to get over first and a couple of them like Mason Mount who looks very promising, but I think he'll probably need a year of Premier League experience before he gets to that level the same goes for Pulisic I think who's a really talented player, but we're talking about Eden Hazard. I mean, I thought Hazard was the best player in the league last year and probably in two of the previous seasons he, he played for Chelsea. He was their best dribbler, he was their best assister and he was their best goal scorer. So they they don't have the players to replace him. And they've also, they're also short of options up front. Giroud, I really like, I've got a lot of affection for, but I think he's the kind of player who plays half your games and comes on as a sub rather than someone who leads the line all season. Pedro and William are good players, but they're getting old. I think a lot of Chelsea players, sorry, a lot of Chelsea fans want them, wanted them replaced. And I've also got question marks about about Kante, who conceivably could be used in a role that he hasn't actually played before. A lot of people think that he's played as a defensive midfielder his entire career. He hasn't really. He's generally played in a double pivot alongside someone else. He's not going to be playing as a box-to-box player. And I think there's a couple of weaknesses in the defence, left back in particular. So 
I, I really can't see Chelsea having a good season at all. The caveat is I, I didn't see them winning the European Cup in, in 2012. They tend to thrive against the odds when people are, are doubting them, but they can pin this up on their dressing room rule because I'm, I'm very much doubting them. I can't see them sustaining a remotely a title challenge. Michael Cox of The Athletic says, what, what would you say, Michael, even outside the top four, perhaps? I mean, I think they're the most likely side to finish outside the top six of the top six. Really? I, I'd be very surprised if they came in the top four. Because they sold Elvis and didn't buy the Beatles or, or beyond that? A little, well, I mean, they've also taken a chance on a manager who's, who's had one season that, from what I could tell, and you guys follow the championship and that region more closely than me. But that was about par, wasn't it, for Lampard, what Derby did last season? It wasn't, that wasn't, this is a great young manager, let's get him in at Chelsea. I think he did a... The thing that people said about him was that he only got one more point, um, although there was only one point difference between Derby last season and Derby the season before under Gary Rowett. But I think he had a much bigger job to do than that. He had to change the squad an awful lot. He had to change the playing style a hell of a lot because it was pretty stodgy and dreadful under Gary Rowett. And he changed that quite successfully. Historically, finishing sixth and getting in the playoffs was is, is about par, but I think given the job he had to do and given that he had to kind of stitch a team together with some admittedly very talented lone players, then I think sixth is a slightly better job than um, it might appear on the, on the face of things. One of the interesting things for Chelsea this season, I think, might be in Fakayo Tomori, if, if he can stay. Because he was probably Derby's best player last season. Um, I know Harry Wilson and Mason Mount get headlines, but Tomori was, was, was excellent. And uh, if, if he can get ahead of... Kurzuma and Andreas Christensen in the queue and establish himself alongside uh, Rudiger or Louise or or even just play as the first backup to those when they get injuries, then I think he could be really exciting. I think we've, one thing we've got to remember about this season, one reason why it's really exciting is we've got a European Championships next summer. So that kind of progression of young English players, especially at top six clubs, is going to be fascinating. OK, Nick says third. Uh, not sure where Michael says. What do you feel about Chelsea? Uh, I think I've predicted a table where they come sixth yeah I'd say sixth or maybe if Leicester have a good season maybe they could sneak ahead but I, I just think they're so lacking in standout individuals if you look at, if you say they're going to play let's say they'll play a front three do any of their front three get in any of the other top six sides I don't think they do they just don't have the quality players as far as I'm concerned you want to talk front threes let's talk Arsenal <laughs> where Chelsea transfer about Arsenal transfer boom as the Gunners uh, laugh at your puny war chest and spaff top dollar on this fellow Pepe. Uh, also, Reese Nelson rejoining them. And uh, on loan, Danny Ceballos. Wow. In what they're calling the best transfer window of anybody. Well, Hyams Park Gunner is anyway. What do you think, Nick? It's slightly odd that they seem to be absolutely fine with the defence that they have, which was... Not good last season and has probably got worse. Well, if the, the key component's gone on strike. If yeah, yeah, if he then sort of deigns to stick around, but the sort of converse of that is maybe that they've seen people quoting you know eighty million for Harry Maguire and however much for Lewis Dunk. They've just decided that there isn't. It's not worth spending you know forty million pounds on a average defender. That said, they are going into the season with Mustafi uh, as one of their key centre backs. So. <sighs> Doesn't look good. Fair enough, Nick. What's going on, though, with Kashani? What prompted this loyal servant of the club to, to suddenly dig his heels in? I think he believes that assurances were made last summer that he would be able to be allowed to leave, effectively, this summer. 
and that Arsenal wouldn't stand in his way. And I think Arsenal's argument is, well, you can leave the summer, but the transfer market works in such as someone makes a bid for you that we think is enough to convince us to accept it and then you can go and in any other circumstances you can't we can't just you know we're we're trying to get back in the top four we can't just allow people to leave on on goodwill alone and I think in in the case of Aaron Ramsey leaving on a free I think that damaged Arsenal's PR and I think they they wanted to come across as stronger that they weren't just letting key components of the team leave and Koscielny's clearly throwing his toys out but I feel for him a little bit, but I also think he's got a huge amount of goodwill from, from Arsenal supporters. He's been backed by a number of, of Arsenal supporters and kind of high-profile Arsenal supporters in inverted commas. But if any other player had done that, we'd be saying, well, that's just simply not on going on strike. So I, I'm a little bit disappointed. As club captain, I think he probably should have dealt with it in a little better way. All right. No shortage of strikers, of course, now at the club, Michael, because they brought in Nicolas Pepe. Your, your feeling about Chelsea being the worst placed of the of last year's top six, is that because Arsenal, who obviously finished below them last time, have done wonderful business in terms of goal-scoring talent? To a certain extent, I really think that the difference between... I mean, like most people, I think there's an obvious top two, a pretty obvious team in third, and then three teams going for fourth. Who's the obvious team in third then? Spurs. Right, OK. I think the big difference is the manager. Uh, Unai Emery isn't the most popular with Arsenal fans at the moment after a slightly iffy first season, particularly the end of the season was disastrous. But you look at his CV, he's got a track record of achieving things. Frank Lampard and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, with all due respect, have been appointed because they're club legends. And I just think that makes Arsenal better placed. And I agree that they've got problems with, with the defence. That's obvious, particularly Mustafi is, I mean, wretched. He just makes so many mistakes. But I think with Bellerin coming back from injury and with Rob Holding coming back from injury... The defence of all the areas of a team is where you can compensate for poor individuals with good organisation. And I think Emery, when you look at his previous track record, has generally done that. So I don't, I don't see as many problems with the defence as, uh, as some people, albeit it probably is the weakest of the top six. Right. Back to Arsenal's front three then. How, how exactly does that work? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer. But I think, I think what Arsenal have, uh, have basically decided is that there is no value in, in centre-backs this summer. Uh, Manchester United didn't really have an alternative to Harry Maguire, which is why they've ended up paying full whack three months after they started trying not to pay full whack. And I think they probably think, almost like Liverpool in 2016-17, where Klopp basically said, well, let's just have a bit of fun here. Let's, see, let's use fun as a starting point to progression. So let's get fans back on side. Let's, have, you know, let's make the football exciting. Let's make them look forward to coming to the ground, which Arsenal fans haven't for a long time. And then from there, let's see what, if that can be a platform for something else. So they could maybe score 85 league goals a season and concede 50. But then if next season they then buy a very good centre-back, they might, as Liverpool, think, well, that's the easier problem to solve now. So I think it's a long plan. The question is whether Arsenal have the patience to see it through, and I, I, I don't know if they do. Are they, are they actually going to field the three of them together, do you think, much? Yeah, I think, I think Lacazette will play through the centre, Bamiyang from the left and Pepe from the right. I think that's quite well balanced, actually. OK, excellent. Ceballos, who I've seen described as a confident, spiky technician who will liven up a turgid midfield. What do you make of that? Uh, I'm always slightly averse to big clubs bringing in players on loan with no option to buy at the end of the season because it, it, it kind of feels to me that if he doesn't play well in the first four or five games he's quite easy to push aside that said Arsenal clearly need bodies in midfield with Aaron Ramsey leaving so there is a natural fit for him the, the interesting thing is how is where Ozil fits in because if they're going to play that front three are they going to try and turn Ozil into a, a kind of attacking central midfielder and therefore play 
Torreira and Guendouzi and Jacko and two of those. If so, there's not really much space for Ceballos or is this the season that Ozil gets moved out? I just worry that because he's on loan and only for a season with no option to buy, that it's quite easy to forget about him. Where are they going to finish this year, Daniel? Uh, I've got them finishing uh, fifth. Um, As I say, fun. I think they'll score lots of goals and concede lots of goals, but that, that might be enough for some supporters this season. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. London, they call it, and they should know they live here. Spurs are a London club, Michael. A London club who you think are going to finish third, despite one or two worrying signs in their preseason. Is that right? I'm kind of making this up. I've absolutely no idea. <laughs> you haven't been following their preseason. I've no, no, no neither I have I. Really, just they're bait. Pochettino is doing his Rafa Benitez act. Oh. A little bit passive aggressive. Incredibly passive. Incredibly passive aggressive. Yeah, a man who screams aggression and then immediately falls into passive aggression. This is great. Now. In many ways, this should be a really exciting season for Spurs, narrowly missing out on the Champions League, of course, last May. And then, for the first time in how long? 18 months longer? Making signings. And what signings? Well, just the, just one, actually, so far. But other ones could be on the way, Daniel. Yeah, uh, there is a, a bit of a downbeat mood, certainly amongst supporters, uh, and probably Pochettino, who is... Uh, he was asked yesterday after the friendly against Inter whether there'd be any signs. And he kind of said, well, you'd have to speak to Daniel Levy, but he's on holiday in Miami, so you won't be able to do that. As a kind of pointed message that everything's being a bit slow. And we, we had a question on Twitter uh, from, from Chris Miller, who's a, a, an excellent Spurs blogger, who kind of said, Daniel Levy obviously thinks that get, he can get value out of the last week of the transfer window. But when you've just played in the Champions League final and you've got a lot of money, there is a benefit to doing it early, especially with a manager like Pochettino, who by all accounts, as soon as players play under him, they, they love the training, they love working for him. I just think waiting until the last two days to bring Ryan Sessegnon bears absolutely no sense at all. When the argument at Sessegnon at Fulham is that he's been poorly coached and, and, pro- and certainly not been coached in the role that Pochettino will probably want to play him in anyway. It just seems a really odd. It seems really wasteful to allow all that goodwill to slip even one iota over the summer. But that's, what, how, that's what Daniel Levy has been like yes. for, for years and years and years, and he's probably not going to change. No, no. Although the signing they have completed, they did make early, Ndombele, who a lot of people feel could be key. Yeah, he looks excellent. I saw him at the Etihad last season when Lyon beat Manchester City really impressively. And he does offer a bit of everything. He's almost an old-school box-to-box midfielder. He can scrap in deeper positions, but he's excellent at carrying the ball forward and just has a kind of calm head when he gets into the final third. He, I, I think he is quite obviously exactly what they needed. He's kind of like Moussa Dembele, but with knees. Is that fair? <laughs> yes. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were going to say with an N, but <laughs> it works as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's also <laughs> yeah. true. Actually, yeah. um, no, he is very similar. Dembele, but I think... Dembele. I mean, the funny thing about Dembele was, for a player who was a converted forward, he really didn't offer goals or assists at all in the final third, whereas Ndombele very much does. He did that in the Champions League. I think he can do that in the Premier League. Yeah, I think he's a really, really good signing. The best signing Spurs have made for a long time. Well, by definition. <laughs> so what, what does his arrival mean in terms of what it might free up other players to do in the Spurs lineup? I'm not sure it will have much of a knock-on effect, really. I think he'll broadly play in the role Sissoko played. Um, I'd like to see him alongside Harry Winks. I think Harry Winks probably needs a good season. There's a lot of us who have a lot of faith in him and really want him to be a top-class player, but he probably didn't develop too much last season. But that, 
has the potential for being a very good partnership. Albeit you maybe say there's not the the real solid natural defensive qualities there. But I think with the organisation of the side, with how tight they keep it between the lines, and with the fact that it looks like Vertonghen and Ordera World are going to stay together, which we didn't expect. We thought Ordera World would leave. That's the best centre-back partnership in the Premier League. So I think that they've got a really good chance of... Uh, well, I think they should finish third again. And there could be more signings. There should be more signings on the way. Is that fair? Yeah, it looks as if... if as we speak on, on late Monday morning, that, that an offer has finally gone in for Ryan Sessegnon, 30 million plus Josh Onoma. The other two are Bruno Fernandes, which I think is pretty spurious. I think Portuguese media have been happy to talk that Not up all spurious, summer. but unfortunately. No, very good, <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, and yeah, Giovanni Dos, um, La Celso, who The worry with that is that anyone else that comes in in midfield now becomes a replacement for an outgoing Christian Eriksen. Um, I think Tottenham fans would probably be happy to um, recruit in other positions and keep that midfield unit as it is now. I think it's pretty good. Other positions being right back where they currently have not much. Um, no. Juan, Juan Foyth, I think, might be he's injured. He's in, he's oh, is he injured? Yeah, he's uh, got I mean, injured. So. I think oh. for, for a reasonably long length of time as well. Uh, I think Ori is injured as well, is he? Yeah, he's he's certainly not fit. Yeah, so they have Carl Walker-Peters, who yeah. is, looks a bit One thing I saw mentioned, and I like it as an idea, is Musa Sissoko at right back. If, if he's going to be shunted out of midfield... There are a few Spurs players that deserve a place in the team more than him at the moment. And, you know, he likes surging forward. He's pretty disciplined when he doesn't have to do too much. And he, so I think it'd be better with the whole pitch in front of him. I think, I think that could work. All right. I'm excited too, Daniel. <laughs> That's Spurs then. And supporters shouldn't be worried about Pochettino. This is purely conjecture, but I think he probably regrets now the fact that Manchester United and Real Madrid and Inter and Juventus all went elsewhere. I wouldn't be surprised if Solskjaer struggles at United if he ends up there. And he's playing that little, as I say, kind of Rafa Benitez-style game of very unsubtly declaring how unhappy he is. And understandably so, but yeah, I'm not sure. United are not the only big club that could see changes sooner than expected. Real Madrid, I wonder how that season's going to progress in the Spanish capital. But that's a question for the Totally Football Show's European edition, which, funnily enough, will be out on Tuesday, Nick. Spurs will begin their Premier League campaign at home to the exciting Aston Villa. Mm. Mm. We'll talk more about Villa on Thursday. Thursday, excellent. Thursday, because Thursday's all about the rest of the Premier League, not the top six. But one more contender for the top six in the Premier League coming up in this Totally Football Show. Is it Everton? Is it Leicester? Is it Man United? We'll discover after this. Their transfer window has been slower moving than Luke Shaw, but <laughs> looks like Harry Maguire is now finally on the way. Lukaku, still pending that bit of business. Lord knows what else is going to be happening with the Red Devils. Uh, to give us a quick update on Everything with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. Let's hear from Ian Irving, Northwest correspondent for the Premier League. In some ways, I'm surprised that the situation is the way it is. And in other ways, I'm not surprised because this is supposed to be a summer of what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer described as clearing the decks, really. And as it stands, other than the players leaving uh, out of contracts at the end of last season, Antonio Valencia and Ander Herrera, no one else has left. I mean, incredibly, Matteo Damian is still a Manchester United player who has barely kicked a ball for what seems like an eternity now. Uh, and, and other players, of course, like Marcus Rocco, uh, United have looked to offload him. Even people like Phil Jones and Chris Smalling, there's been talk about them too. They're still all there. 
uh, obviously. Romelu Lukaku is the one player that United uh, do want to sell as well, who they could get some money back on, which maybe then could be reinvested into a replacement. Obviously, the situation now with Dybala at Juventus seems to have died down. Uh, a curious case of a club pulling out of signing a player because he doesn't want to join them, which uh, worked that one out. But yeah, there's still a lot of work for United to do. And of course, not much time left now in this transfer window. How optimistic would you be for Man United fans that the arrival of the a very exciting Wan-Bissaka and uh, the formidable Harry Maguire will, will at least resolve their issues at the back. Yeah, you'd hope that they go some way to solving them. I mean, Manchester United's defensive performances last year were appalling, weren't they, by by the sort of top six standards in the Premier League. I think it was the, the worst defense, defensive record that United had had during the Premier League era. So clearly there was issues to resolve there. There has been a lot of injuries as there always seems to be with with United's defence over the last 12 months or so. And hopefully Wan-Bissaka and Maguire, who don't have the same sort of record on that front, will improve things straight away. They're a, a step up, of course, in quality as well from what's been there before. Um, I mean, Wan-Bissaka on the pre-season tour has looked absolutely fantastic, to be fair. Um, United's Twitter account haven't tired yet, even if we have... Uh, about boasting about him being Spider-Man and, and no one being able to get past him, etc., etc. I think with Maguire, there the may be a slight frustration that he, he wasn't at the club maybe two or three weeks ago. It seems like the price is roughly the same as it was then. Uh, and obviously the opportunity missed for him to settle in during pre-season, get used to his new surroundings, get used to his new teammates, work with the coaches for a few more weeks. And instead, he's likely to be thrown in at the weekend for his debut against Chelsea, having had just a few days to train with his team. So be interesting to see how that settles down. But no doubt at all, it's a step up from what they had last year, definitely. Ian Irving. Manchester United have mastered the art of looking busy, writes Daniel Story today. Yes. Look, they've signed a first-choice right-back. They signed a first-choice centre-back, which is things they needed. But in April, Solskjaer was at pains to tell us that Manchester United needed a sporting director, that they needed a a split of responsibilities at the club, that they needed to allow him to concentrate on coaching and man management. And Ed Woodward coach concentrate on his business deals and someone in the middle to actually run the football club properly, which is something they haven't really tried since, for, for the last six or seven years. And that's all mysteriously just been brushed under the carpet in this. I, I honestly, and it's very, it's it's a slightly conspiracy theorist, but I honestly think that they've this Harry Maguire deal and the Dybala stuff has just been dragged on and on and on to kind of prolong fans' interests and to make them suddenly incredibly joyous and grateful when Harry Maguire comes over the line three months after they pay the the price that Leicester told everyone they would have to pay. I, I just don't get it. I, do, I don't get why they haven't bothered to change the structure at all or even attempt to. The only names we've seen are basically no, names from that class of 92 or their teammates. We haven't seen any talk of a, an actual expert in that role. And uh, uh, Maguire takes them to 840 million they spent on players since June 2013, I think. So this is an incredibly expensive squad. But a year ago, they were 7-1 to to the title, and now they're 40-1 to for the title. So that suggests that something is going wrong. In, and it's not just that Man City and Liverpool have got better. It's that they're not doing anything. They um, opened their campaign against Chelsea. They had a rotten record against big six sides last year. Do you see them as better this time around? Not significantly. I think Wan-Bissaka is an upgrade on what they had at right back. I think Maguire is a bit of an upgrade. But I still don't see anything to make me think that they'll progress into the top four, to be honest. I think it's... Uh, it's a side with lots of weaknesses. I think I think central midfield, I think Matic has looked really immobile the last couple of seasons. 
don't really understand what they're doing in the final third. I like Lukaku. I don't really understand why he's mm. being pushed out. I think he, when Solskjaer came in, I was like, well, he's the kind of manager that will give Lukaku some confidence. That doesn't seem to have happened. I, I've reservations about Solskjaer. I don't really understand what he's doing there. With all due respect, he was a great appointment as a caretaker. But why you've persisted with him, you know, into a second season, I find bizarre. I think there's actually a good case where. And, and this is not maybe taking account of their potential, but if you look at the CV of all the managers in the Premier League, I think there's a good chance Lampard and Solskjaer are the least qualified for their jobs and they're in charge of two of the top six teams. I think it's a remarkable situation, really. I mean, OK, he's won a title in Norway, but you you talk to people who kind of model these things and rank leagues and they consider the Norwegian Premier League on roughly the same level as League One in England. So, you know, Solskjaer's achievements are with respect, less than Daniel Fox or Chris Wilder's at Sheffield United. I think, it's, I think it's a slightly bizarre situation, to be honest. I think it's probably linked to the fact that a lot of these clubs are just obsessed with PR these days. And it's been great PR to have Solskjaer there. But that doesn't mean you should you know, completely change your club to be based around this guy with relatively minimal experience. It's quite interesting that he, he, he seems to have a quite an old-school approach as well. He seems to have spent most of the summer making his players run, whether he thinks that they were monumentally unfit before but it's the, it sounds like a pre-season training from you know 25 years ago when the you know the first couple of weeks were people just doing cross country runs and you know flogging themselves to death before they got to using the ball and now people you know the, there's a much more integrated way of training now that he doesn't seem to or initially at least he didn't seem to kind of to agree with or implement the reality is and it's 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 quite it's an it's an irony really is that Solskjaer is very much about bringing this club back to where it belongs but if that club gets anywhere near back to where it belongs it won't have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as its manager he is the outlier there if they if they do well he is the outlier so all this talk of kind of bringing back the real Manchester United and taking bringing us back to the glory dates is just fluff that's all it is it's guff and it's it's fluff that the club are incredibly happy for Solskjaer to parrot because if he does so it it goes down well with supporters and it sells tickets and it sells shirts but you know a club should aim to be better than that it should aim to be bigger than that and say well forget that for a minute let's concentrate on us actually sustainably moving forward in the right direction there are a few days left in the transfer window and there is the possibility that for example Dybala could come in and play the vital disaffected South American uh, attacking <laughs> yeah, they, midfielder they already role. had Angel Di Maria doing that and it worked really well but so and, and Alexis Sanchez is still there uh, while Herrera got moved on, which slightly confused me because I thought Herrera was somebody who actually did have a positive uh, I mean, he was out of contract, yeah, so okay, he, he'd had but enough. But Sanchez? Just like, impossible to move him, is it? Yeah, now that, that's an, and they don't deserve to move him because they bought him purely pretty much to stop another club buying him and they, they paid him more than anyone else in the country. So you don't get to move players on like that easily. Could, they, could, he, come, could, he, could he come good for them? Uh, I would have said yes if... He hadn't have had a Copper America this summer. The problem appears to be that his legs look a little bit shot. But he did look good in that Copper America for Chile. I I think he looked okay. I think people were desperately looking, seeking out positive signs rather than... He didn't light up the tournament. And a player on his wage with his reputation should be trying to be the best player at that tournament. And he wasn't that. They could get Man- They could get Mandzukic. Because what they don't want is a striker that's not moving in the match at the moment. So they want to get rid of Lukaku, take a loss on him and and bring in Mario Mandzukic, who I I can't think of a striker who plays that I'm not going to move much, but I will stand at the back post and be successful doing it better than him. But it's just bizarre. 
It's it's it's, it's that transfers seem to just happen to Manchester United. There's no plan. It's I mean it's it's it, as someone who in, grew up with them being brilliant, it, it is enjoyable to an extent, but. They should be utterly embarrassed with their business. See, that's the thing. I'm not a Manchester United fan and grew up at the same time as Daniel. I, I just find this almost like embarrassing yeah. for them. I, I like, it's cringing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, when I was a kid in the 1990s, to hear that Manchester United would be struggling in 20 years would have had a good old chuckle at that. But I just, I mean, what are you doing? Pull yourselves together. I mean, it's embarrassing, really, the, the way they're carrying on. Solskjaer, at times last year, was... I don't mean to be rude because he seems like a, a nice fella, but a bit of a laughing stock with the references to 1999. He's clearly been told to, to kind of tone that down, but it's just, yeah, I find it slightly infuriating. Mm. So why have you got uh, Chelsea more likely to drop out of the top six than United? Because I think United actually have some very good players. I think Paul Pogba on his day is exceptional. Right. De Gea, if he returns to how good he was two seasons ago, is the best goalkeeper in the league by a long way. I don't think Chelsea have that quality. Still comfortably top six then for United. Would you, would you agree, Daniel, Nick? I don't think comfortably. No, they. Um, I think they they're they have every chance of slipping out. I mean, they, there are this clutch of teams behind them: Leicester, Everton. You know, Wolves looked really good last season. They could. I know they haven't they haven't upgraded a huge amount on the the team from last season, but they were very impressive and and could get better. So, probably sixth, but I don't think don't think by any means guaranteed. I've got them in the predict table. I've got them coming fourth purely because I think the defensive improvement in the defensive options will help David De Gea, and I think he will be. He can't be as bad as he was last season, which I think squeaks them fourth. But they, they do. They feel like a control experiment. It feels like how many bad decisions can you make to a financial superpower and still not have them drop out of the top six? Now they they went for the day. They managed it under David Moyes. I don't think they will manage it under Ole Solskjaer but that that might only be because they make a mid-season change on Thursday we're going to be talking about some of those teams Nick was just mentioned that could be breaking into the the hallowed upper echelons of the Premier League well still to come today we're going to be checking out what's in our bulging mail sack and also hearing what the guys are most looking forward to seeing at least looking forward to seeing this season, some interesting developments on the way. But uh, first of all, let's get some odds on football things. Producer Ben has been speaking to Lee Price from Paddy Power. Thank you very much, Jim. But I think I speak for everyone listening when I say it's good to have you back. And uh, don't make it so long next time. Anyway, I've got Lee Price on the line from Paddy Power. And Lee, let's start with the title. I'm a Liverpool fan, but should I be feeling pessimistic about Liverpool's title odds? Is this City season once again? Oh, God. Liverpool fans are going to be sick of me already. As I said last week about the Charity Shield, they're going to be second favourites of Man City in pretty much every competition they play in this year. They're 13-5 to to win the Premier League. City the favourites. After them, there's a long old gap. Tottenham top the best of the rest market. All right. Spurs got to the Champions League final last season, of course. They weren't so good in the league. Can Mauricio Pochettino deliver a trophy to North London this season? Tough, this one. Maybe... We make it 4-1, to one, which is quite a long price for a big team to win a trophy, but Tottenham are just so unpredictable, aren't they? Uh, they've had a few interesting sales, they've actually made some signings, and Potter started rowing publicly with Daniel Levy again. It's hard to know what's going on there, um, but unless they get a trophy for third place, which we do think is nailed on, we're not so sure. Speaking of North London, Arsenal are looking pretty vulnerable when it comes to the top six. What are the market saying when it comes to Arsenal finishing seventh or below? 
Hmm, I said earlier that Tottenham are a funny one. So are Arsenal. They're 2-1 to one to finish 7th or lower, which would be unthinkable just a few years ago. But as the odds clearly indicate, not that surprising this season. They are odds-on they finish in the top six, but not to finish in the top four. And finally, time to talk about Man United. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer still in charge. Is he still going to be there after Christmas? First he was at the wheel, now should be right in his wheel in terms of his career at Man United because we think he will be gone by Christmas Day. Uh, it's 7-4, to four. he doesn't celebrate Christmas as a Man United manager and it's odds on he doesn't see out the season. Not to really kick him while he's down, but he's also a joint favourite in the sack race of Steve Bruce. Perhaps the most damning indictment of his position at the minute. Well, you can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. A lot of interesting things. Mention the odds on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And listener Michael says, who do we think is the first manager who's going to get his marching orders in the Premier League this season? It's always unfortunate to see mm. professionals. I, I, I We'll probably talk about them more on Thursday. But mm. um, I think Palace could struggle this season. Uh, without Wan Bissaka and Zaha one Cleaver. I, I wonder if Uncle Roy might get a little bit tired of the whole thing if Palace start badly. So I would have him. But if you look at the Premier League, there's actually, other than Solskjaer, basically top 12 or 13, every manager looks pretty much safe. Uh, and the promoted clubs, the managers there, have an incredible amount of goodwill for getting them up or are affiliated deeply with the club in some reason. So it's actually really hard this season, I think. But I went for, I went for Hodgson. Okay, Nick. Maybe Marco Silva. He's, there's a quite a lot of expectation at Everton if that goes starts going south by October, November. That could that could go wrong. Steve Bruce, Newcastle. Who knows what's going to happen there? That's, That's so true. So true, Michael. I think we could get to the new year without anyone going. That would be nice, wouldn't I mean, it? I mean, as Daniel says, I think there's a lot of managers who are stable. I think there have been a lot of good appointments in the last couple of years. Look at someone like Southampton, who've chopped and changed with some less than successful managers in recent years but Hasenhut was a really good mm. when he finished second in the Bundesliga he's going to Southampton you know appointments like that the Premier League's changed a little bit over the last couple of years this is a season where we don't have an Allardyce a Pardew a Warnock a Moyes those kind of names Mark Hughes that were doing the rounds they've kind of been moved on and we've got in a generation of managers who actually seem bright and switched on and have a bit of a long term plan for their club I think the the, the other one maybe that is the kind of out there appointment is is Graham Potter at, at Brighton, who comes with a good reputation, but we've seen before that he, he's English, so there is a section of the media that will give him a lot more leeway than they would have done to maybe, let's say, like a Remy Gard or Bob Bradley, who both failed pretty spectacularly. But I guess that's an unknown. But again, Brighton are not a club who who knee-jerk typically. So, And if he starts well, he'll be fine. OK. Josh asks, with all the spending this summer, do you think the Athletic will stay up or have they done a Fulham, Michael? <laughs> I, th- I think Josh is joking. It, here's a great question from JP Hill. Selhurst Park has a Sainsbury's built into it. Do any other stadiums have supermarkets inside them? Nick? Uh, well, uh, Bundon Park used to before it... I don't, I'm not sure what it is now, but it's not there, not there anymore. And um, my deep internet research has revealed the uh, Vojtovac Stadium in Belgrade oh. is built on top of a shopping centre. It features uh, a McDonald's, a KFC and a supermarket. Doesn't Louis Dirt that's certainly built on a, there's some kind of weird it's thing. It's a car park, car isn't it? It's a car park yeah. but doesn't the train pass inside it as well? Is there not a shopping centre in there too? I'm not sure. There used to be a, a road underneath the, the stand at the Calderon 
in okay. Madrid. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? Crucially, that is not a supermarket. Though, <laughs> so. Well, uh, so it might has, be now. Oh, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Selhurst Park also has a nightclub in it called Crystals. Mm. That's mm. that is a, uh, also Stanford Bridge has a nightclub yeah, under in the it. bridge. Under, yeah, under the bridge. That's a good name, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Both good names, to be fair. Yeah. Arajit says, "What have been the best and worst transfer windows so far amongst the big European teams?" Well, we'll get the European squads view on this in our. Tuesday Euro edition, but Michael's here to tell you that there is no such thing as best and worst transfer windows, and he's right. Wow, why is that, Michael? No, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go that far. But making conclusions on transfer windows is sometimes. Yeah, Fulham being the obvious example last season, who won the transfer window, and I say they're now they're now in the Championship and they're winning the transfer window again by signing <laughs> Anthony Knockart and um, you know, yeah, who knows what's and losing at Barnsley. Uh, yes, losing at Barnsley. Yeah. I know. I just think. I, th- I just think keeping a settled side is really important. I, I think Liverpool have had a great transfer window because they've got the side that won the European Cup last year and got 98 points in the Premier League. Maybe they could have done with an extra player, but I'd prefer that than have three players out, three players of roughly equal ability in. I think people just a little bit obsessed with the same with the sums and the the big names. Very good. Well, it all kicks off this weekend. Can I just finish off by asking you what you're most looking forward to seeing and what you're most dreading this year, Nick? Well, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is seeing how Norwich get on. I really like Daniel Farker. I really like his, his overcoats. They're very, you know, he's, he has a, a, a fine line in an Allen rack. All right. Uh, and he also, have a Farker Parker? Oh, there you go. Yes, it is. I think it is the Farker Parker. And it, 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 they have a really uh, interesting, exciting style of play as well. So um, it worked uh, after a season of getting it right in the championship, really looking for the seeing how it works in the Premier League as well. Bingo. And what are you most dreading? What am I most dreading? <sighs> Three little letters that I'm missing here. What? What? VAR. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I went to out, out to the the VIR hub. Um, Stockley Park. Stockley Park. A, yeah, a I'm going to be there. They're doing another little briefing yeah. on that tomorrow because it's a streamlined thing. Mm. You, Nick, you actually got to play with the VAR machine. I did, yeah. And I, I went into it thinking, right, well, I'm going into this with an open mind and I, maybe it'll kind of, you know, it'll allay my fears about uh, VAR, but it didn't really. Did it's not. still the same. <laughs> they, they, they did a very good job of explaining everything and, you know, how we we're going to make things clearer and they're going to have. Yeah, they're certainly going to make things clearer for the people in the stadium, but uh, I, I, my fears weren't allayed about the whole, the whole concept there's, of the thing. There's a really weird thing in the Community Shield yesterday where they seemingly randomly went to look for a red possible red card, I, th- I suppose for a tackle by Trent Alexander-Arnold, but it looked completely fabricated and manufactured just to show, look, this is what we're going to do, we're going to let you know, the communication's going to be fine, and I'm pretty sure it was just completely manufactured to let people know, but yeah, I, I have the same fears as I did before. Okay, I'm not a VAR fan. No, I've heard. But but, uh, it it does sound exciting, the fact that they're not going to require, I think this is the key difference, they're not going to require the referee to walk over to the sideline and look at stuff. They can also make decisions themselves. They can can do, yeah. There will be an element of that, and there are some entertaining uh, new rules about players aren't allowed to approach the referee while he's looking at his little telly oh. and players will also be booked if they make the VAR sign so if they draw a square in an aggressive or excessive manner 
So that's going to be good. For Drawing them. a square in an excessive, <laughs> excessive or, or aggressive, aggressive manner. Yeah. So if wow. they just kind of do a little square very delicately in right. the air to politely ask the referee if he'd like to go and have having a look at that, that's fine. But if you do it aggressively and excessively, you're in the books then. Daniel, that may have changed your answer on what you're most looking forward to seeing this season. Uh, most looking forward to. I think it's young English players hopefully getting minutes and getting minutes abroad. Well, the host of them that have gone abroad, but Phil Foden, Rian Brewster, um, Mason Mounts, Fakaya Tamori. We have a, a Euro 2020 next summer and the semis and the final are going to be at Wembley. So it's really intriguing, I think, as to what will happen with that squad. And uh, something you're not looking forward to? Dread, dread's too strong, but I hope we do get a a proper title race last season felt brilliant because we had a proper title race I hope this City and or Liverpool and a another team don't just walk away with it Michael dreading VAR and then I'm looking forward to another change which uh, this is very geeky but the change to the goal kick rule I think is really interesting tell me more um, so previously you had to, your goal kicks had to be played outside the box now you can play it to someone within the box and I just think it's really going to change over the last few years teams put a really big emphasis on coming up with a very set pattern to play the ball out and then teams were very keen on scouting the opposition, press in a certain way. Now it's going to be tougher to press. It'll be easier to play the ball out. And I just think tactically it will just, it's just a, another thing that will provide interest. So. I read a book that suggested that the last big change to the back pass rule. Yep. Oh, sorry. Uh, which I read a book which suggested that the last change involving kicks and goalkeepers and that kind of thing was one of the biggest factors for the upgrade and excitement in football yeah it was the mixer of course your book michael do you see this as having a similarly seismic effect i don't think it will be as big of an issue but i do think it will allow teams to play out from the back a little bit more freely it will make it more difficult to press and i think to refer to a really specific example mm. when you play man city teams try and press them to stop and playing out goal kicks but edison can hoof the ball 70 yards over the top of them and you can't play offside from a goal kick so if you're having to press that far up the pitch and still your defenders are having to be on the halfway line, there's so much space in midfield. And we saw that with City a couple of times in pre-season where they just arrowed, yep. or uh, Bravo and Edison arrowed really good passes into the midfield zone. And suddenly David Silver or Kevin De Bruyne is in 20 yards of space. So I think it is going to cause teams problems. I've written specifically about this Ooh. for theathletic.com. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Available now on a seven-day free trial subscription. Daniel. Yesterday you had scenes where... Otamendi was taking the goal kick to Bravo and doing a quick one-two so he could take the ball in stride and move forward. And Guardiola is one of those managers. He does not need any help to be to put himself ahead of the pack, but he's one of those sort of managers who will obsess about the potential benefits of doing this. And you could already see it yesterday. So Benfica tried this trick where the goalkeeper just chipped it straight up to the defender. The defender headed it back and then he had it in his arms. The goalkeeper had it in his arms and then he can come to the edge of the box and throw it out. So if that becomes a trend, then goal kicks are essentially dead. We don't have goal kicks anymore. That has the added benefit of them getting it wrong and just scoring an own goal by heading it past their own goalkeeper, yeah. which I think we can all get behind. I think Paul Dummett's my early <laughs> early favourite for that, I think. But it's also, sorry, one last thing, but obviously this is a rule change across football. So this will change Sunday league. Because when I used to play like kids football, one of the big things was often your goalkeeper couldn't launch it more than 20 yards out of the box. So, I mean, they've actually brought in this retreat rule thing, which which I think has changed things now. Mm. But now, for Sunday league teams, you can just have, like, someone chipping it up and then someone just hoofing it on the volley up the pitch, <laughs> which will transform Sunday league. Game done, changed. 
All right, one more Totally Football show coming up on Tuesday with our special European edition. And then Thursday, we'll be talking about more of the Premier League ahead of the campaign opener on Saturday. For now, though, many thanks to Michael Cox, Daniel Story and Nick Miller. Uh, hope you have a super launch, Nick. Thank you very much. Not at all. I look forward to catching up with everything that's happening on the TotallyFootballShow.com. Listener, hopefully we're going to be part of your week. And thanks for being with us today. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. <laughs>